Good morning. All right, so for those of you who keep score or even pay attention to such things, I have twice as many pages as usual. Um, you don't need to worry. I don't have 10,000 words instead of 5,000. I have a bigger font, okay? Uh, I experimented, and this was not due to my developing vision issues as I age, although it's really handy, I've got to tell you. It's pretty good. Um, I experimented with a new way to, to do my sermon this week, um, which was more distracting than I realized it would be. So if I get lost, uh, remember what the prayer said, you know, don't hold us to perfection up here. Um, just give us a little grace. So hopefully I'll be okay. But it is like, whoa, look at this. Okay, so here we go. Um, last week we gathered for our meal at community group and we were talking about various things as we always do. Um, what's going on in our lives. It had, it had been a month since we got together for a community group because of holidays and this and that. And we, th- we talked about what interesting things we'd run into. Dan Reppert uh, told us about a documentary that he had seen about, of all things, the fraternal order of real bearded Santas. All right? These are the guys who have the real white beards, not the fake ones, who pay a lot of money for their outfits. I actually did a little research on these people after he told me about it. And they have happy and less than happy children sitting on their laps. Now, I have to tell you, that is my vision of Hades, um, <laughs> to have uh, an unhappy child sitting on my lap for hours on end. So I, God bless these people. Um, I don't know how they do it, but I could not do that, okay, uh, ever. Um, so, uh, but Dan talked about how they have a meeting early each year because while they've been the center of attention for the last few months, suddenly nobody cares about them. And they feel a little down and blue. So they get together for some support and understanding. And that led to a whole conversation about different organizations that people around the table were aware of. One person described the community of the people who participate in CrossFit. Um, These are people who are very supportive, but I suspect they're quite intense. Um, So I'm not sure I want to come across a whole community of them. Sorry if you do CrossFit. One person described another group called North Carolina Merfolk. As in mermaids and mermen. I'm sure I don't want to know anything else about them. (laughs) And I reflected on the years that Nanette and I did ballroom dancing. We found a whole different subculture and community out there about which we before that had known absolutely nothing. And we had a great time in that community for many years. So interestingly, while humans are all individuals, there's something about humans that make us want to gather in communities of like-minded people. It seems to be inherent in our makeup. And so today, as we're now looking inward, we're going to look at some aspects of biblical or gospel community. As Todd mentioned last week, in this final month of preparation before our move, we're pausing, as it were, at overlooks. We're looking to ponder where we have been and where we're going, to ponder who we are to one another and who we are to the surrounding culture. We're looking backwards and forwards. And the two words he couldn't remember last week was inward and outward. He was trying to find those on his page. I can relate, okay? Um, So last week, Todd looked back, okay? And we celebrated where we started and where we've been. And Todd reminded us to be sure to have Ebenezer's to remind us of God's faithfulness. And he said, as was even mentioned this morning by, um, by Daniel as he was up here, God invites us to grieve as we lose this space and as we lose other things every day in our lives, like my vision. Um, In the last sermon in this series, Todd's going to look forward. But in the meantime, I'm looking inward at us as a community, and next week Daniel is going to look outward. 
Our tagline here at Hope is that we are a gospel community seeking the flourishing of the city. And so as we look inward today, this passage in Hebrews is going to help us understand more about what it has meant to be a gospel community and what it will mean to continue to be a gospel community. And I have two main points. We can enter the presence of God because of the work of Jesus, and the result is a community of faith, hope, and love. Let me pray. Lord, thanks for this community and for your love for um, it and for all of us as individuals and as your body. And we pray that as we consider your word, you would guide us and uh, inspire us and, as we will say at the end, even incite us to love and good works. Amen. All right. As we look at our passage today, let me just say real quickly that this is a transition set of verses, okay? It's looking backwards and it's looking forward. It's kind of like we're doing in this series. We see this transitional word, therefore. Now, whenever you see, I've said this a million times before up here, when you see the word, therefore, you got to look backwards and you got to be ready for what's coming. So what's back there? A lot of theology. Nine and a half chapters of really deep theology. So we don't have time to go through all that today, Um, but let me give you a few summary points. Up until this point, the author has revealed that the Son is the ultimate revelation of God. In chapter 1, in fact, there are seven statements given about the majesty of the Son. The Son is the one whom God appointed as heir of all things. You can go into the next slide, Robin, I think. Yeah, okay. The Son is the one whom God appointed as heir of all things. The sun is the one through whom God made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. The sun is the exact representation of God's being. The sun sustains all things by his powerful word. The sun provided purification for sins. And after providing purification for sins, the sun sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The book of Hebrews also has told us that the work of human priests in the Old Testament sacrificial systems, which we're going to talk a bit more about shortly, was temporary, and it had to be repeated over and over again. And this is summarized in Hebrews 10:11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. And the author has also shown that the work of Jesus on the cross is permanent and need not be repeated. And this is summarized in 10, uh, chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins, for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So our passage today stands in the transition from these magnificent statements about the fullness, glory, and beauty of the Son of God and what he did on the cross, statements that should utterly fill us with awe to instruction on how we should live in the face of full, such fullness, glory, and beauty. So our first two verses this morning, 19 and 20. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. Now, for those of us who have been followers of Jesus for a long time, years, or for some of us, many decades, This may be a familiar verse, and it may have very familiar concepts. But perhaps you haven't been a follower of Jesus for very long, or perhaps you're not a follower of Jesus at all. You're thinking, what in the world does all this mean? What is this veil and holy place and all this other stuff? Well, 
We're going to talk about that, and I'm going to say that it would also behoove all of us as old Christians, old followers of Jesus, to pause and look at this with fresh eyes and really understand what the author is trying to help us understand. First of all, we need to recognize that the letter of the Hebrews, or the book of Hebrews, was written to Jews or to Jewish Christians, more probably the latter. And if you flip over to the first part of the book, you'll look that it does not say that. It does not say to whom the letter was written. How do we know that it was written to Jewish Christians? Well, first of all, the earliest manuscripts actually do, in fact, have a title called Two Hebrews. And the contents are rich in references to the Old Testament concepts and and system of sacrifice and stuff like that points that way as well. So why is that important? Well, to really understand the entire book of Hebrews, and especially this passage, you have to understand the nature of the tabernacle and of the temple and of the role of the priest and the high priest. So let's review that a little bit. The tabernacle was the movable worship center of the Jews during the Exodus. It was a tent, but it was a special tent. There was this outer wall, kind of like a big fence, and that outer wall defined an inner space called the outer court. And inside this outer court was another tent that contained the holy place, and behind a veil, behind a place... Uh, 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 inside the, the holy place was another place called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the st- tablets of stones onto which were written the Ten Commandments. Now, the tabernacle was used throughout the time of the Exodus, the time of the judges and during the reigns of Saul and David. It was brought to Jerusalem finally during the reign of David. The tabernacle was ultimately replaced by the temple. And there were, in fact, in history, two, possibly three temples, depending on how you're counting. Solomon's temple was the first temple. It was built by David's son, Solomon. It was utterly destroyed by the Babylonians when Judah was taken into captivity. The second temple, built during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, replaced the first temple. But it, too, was desecrated, if not destroyed, by the Roman general Pompey in 63 B.C., And there was a third temple, or a renovation of the second, depends on how you count, done by, of all people, Herod the Great. Remember him? We talked about him during the Christmas sermons. He's the guy who killed all the infants around Bethlehem. Herod the Great rebuilt the temple. Why did he do that? Because he wanted to gain favor with the Jews. All right? That temple was ultimately destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. But the point about the temple is it was just like the tabernacle. It had the Holy of Holies and separated by a veil. Sorry, it had a holy place and separated by a veil was the Holy of Holies. Now, only one person was allowed into the Holy of Holies and only once a year. And that was the high priest. Once a year, he could go in and once he and he had to be prepared for this. Why was it that only one person could go in once a year and why was such special preparation Because to be in the Holy of Holies was literally to be in the presence of God. To the Jewish people, the Holy of Holies represented the presence of God in their midst and where God was. So to the Jews, the holiness and separateness and majesty and holiness of God and the sinfulness of man meant that a man or woman would not survive being in the presence of God except under very special circumstances. And if you look back at Jewish history, you'll see sometimes like that, where a person was in or near the presence of God and did not feel very safe. 
When Israel was before Mount Sinai and God was meeting Moses on Mount Sinai, he told Moses to tell the people, don't come toward or touch the mountain or you're going to die because you're sinful and I'm holy. After Moses would meet with God, his face shone so brightly that he had to veil it to be able to talk to the other Israelites. They couldn't even stand to look at it. It shone with such glory. When Isaiah had a vision of the heavenly temple and the glory of God in Isaiah 6, he says, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am, a man, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So, only once a year, after special sacrifices and ceremonial bathing, could the high priest go through the veil and enter the Holy of Holies to represent the people in the presence of God. Now, our passage then is saying that the way into the Holy of Holies, the way into the presence of God is open, not just to the high priest, but to all people through the blood of Jesus. And not only that, we can enter in confidence. Now, I want you to imagine, if you will, how shocking and stunning that statement would be to Jewish Christians. People who came out of the Jewish faith and became believers, they're thinking, oh my goodness, I can go into the Holy of Holies. I can go through the veil. This would blow their minds. It should blow our minds as well. We take this ability to enter the presence of God kind of for granted, don't we? In a way, maybe we should, because the author here says we should enter with confidence. We should enter with confidence into this most holy place, the presence of God. And similarly, Paul tells us in Romans 8, 15, that we should call God Abba, Father, which means Daddy. Every, every time I read that, the image in my mind is, is our, our son Kyle when he was a toddler. And whenever I would come home from work, when I opened the door, he would yell, Daddy home, and come running to greet me. That's what it means to be able to call God Abba, Father. But in a way, we should not take this ability to enter into God's presence for granted. We're sinful people who are entering the presence of the holy, sinless one, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And as Daniel pointed out to us two weeks ago, we don't like owning up to our sins. It's not popular in our culture. Frankly, I suspect it's never been popular in any culture. But it's especially unpopular today. The fact that talking about our sin is unpopular, though, doesn't make it any less sinful. So what might it look like to not take this ability to enter into God's presence for granted? In a word, I think it would look like preparation. When the high priest entered the Holy of Holies, he did not do so unprepared. Consider this in human terms. When I go to meet my boss, I just don't go waltzing in unprepared. I think about it. I, I, I kind of ponder what I want to get accomplished in the meeting, uh, what I'm worried she's going to tell me about that I got a problem with, all that stuff. Shouldn't we think at least the same about God as we do about our bosses? Now, again, I'm not, let me be clear, I'm not saying that we should get out the sackcloth and ashes, okay? I, I don't want us to do anything odd here. Um, we shouldn't do that as we begin to approach God, but I think we would all benefit from time to time by pausing before we enter a time of prayer or a time of worship, whether that is private or corporate. So the blood of Jesus means that we can and we should have confidence to enter into the presence of God 
But the fact that it took the, the horrible death of the Son of God to accomplish this means that we would do well to balance times in which we thoughtfully and carefully enter the presence of God with a full recognition of what it took to be able for us to do that. Balance that with times in which we rush into the presence of our Heavenly Father like a toddler, excited to see his father or mother come home. In and around the temple, the function of the high priest was quite varied. He had several roles. He handled many sacrifices and offerings. Most importantly, as we've already noted, when he entered the most holy place to intercede for the people on the Day of Atonement, he was the leader of all the priests. He was to see that the covenant between God and the Israelites was enforced. He was to direct the heart of the people toward God. And he was the representative of the people before God and the representative of God, in a sense, before the people. He was the mediator. Our next verse indicates that Jesus has now become the high priest. Verse 21, and since we have a high priest over the house of God. Jesus is now the high priest of all of his followers. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. And in chapters 1 through 9 of Hebrews, the author has gone to great lengths to discuss how perfect Jesus is as our high priest. For example, uh, chapter 7, verse 23 through 28, the former priests, on the other hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, high priest holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. Jesus is a permanent high priest. He is a perfect high priest. And the offering that Jesus offers up to God is not an animal or even many animals, but himself. Hebrews 9, 24 through 26, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The most holy place that Jesus entered is not the representation of heaven, the holy of holies. It is heaven. It is the presence of God. So these first two verses today are packed with rich theology, summarizing what the previous nine and a half chapters have told us about the blood of Jesus and through which we are able to enter into the presence of God with confidence, a confidence and a comfort that should be accompanied by this unusual combination, I think, of fear, awe, and delight, and that Jesus continues to be that perfect mediator, even today, advocating for us. That's the background now as we turn to the end of the book. So that's look back at the previous nine chapters. Now we're going to look forward to the next three chapters. There are three exhortations or commands or imperatives that are mentioned here, and the rest of the book of Hebrews goes on to develop these. The three commands are draw near in full assurance of faith, more fully developed in chapter 11. Hold fast to the confession of our hope, more fully developed in chapter 12. 
and consider how to encourage one another to love, more fully developed in chapter 13. Now, I have to admit, when I first read this passage and started studying it, I did what I always do and what we all always do. We, I brought my own bias and my own worldview into the reading of it. Yes, it's true that humans, uh, sorry, in my own worldview. And the bias and worldview that I brought was the one that many, if not all of us have. We bring it in from our culture, and I talked about it a little bit in a sermon last fall. It is true that we tend to congregate into communities, as I said at the beginning, but our culture today has this overwhelming emphasis on the individual. It's a combination of many ideas, but the most important two are this rugged individualism. I get what I deserve, and I have to work for what I get. And this idea that I am, in fact, the most important person in my life, just in case you're wondering. Everything revolves around me. So I read this passage as I need to have full assurance of faith. I need to hold fast to hope. I need to figure out how to stir up others. Is that what it says? No. All of the verses have first-person plural pronouns, we and us. And while it could be that the writer is simply grouping us all together as a bunch of individuals, because a bunch of eyes is we and a bunch of... Wait a minute. Yeah, a bunch of eyes is we and a bunch of me's isn't us. That's a true statement. We should really be reading this passage to understand what we're to do as individuals and corporately. As a community, we are to draw near in full assurance of faith. As a community, we are to hold fast the confession of our hope. And as a community, we are to encourage one another to love. So let's look at each one a bit deeper. Verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We, individually and corporately, can draw near to God. Now, um, let's look at the last two things first in this verse, okay? Our hearts sprinkled clean and our bodies washed with pure water. This is not a reference to baptism, okay? This is not a reference to baptism. This is imagery from the Old Testament, just like this entire book is is imagery from the Old Testament. As with this imagery of the Holy of Holies and the High Priest, these two ideas, a heart that is sprinkled clean and a body that is washed with pure water, go back to the Old Testament times. A Jewish convert reading this would have immediately thought of Ezekiel 36, 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Here, God is promising that as part of the new covenant, when it comes, he will cleanse the people. And second, the Jewish convert would have recalled that before the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, he had to bathe his whole body as an image of the cleansing from his sins that was required before he could enter God's presence. Now, the important point of this sprinkling and this bathing is that these two verbs are perfect participles. I knew you knew that. They're done. They're finished. They don't have to be repeated. A perfect participle means the action is completed once and for all and does not need to be repeated again. We don't need to be sprinkled and bathed over and over again. So as we begin to think about what it means to draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, we need to know that God has already cleansed us, from, cleansed us through the blood of Jesus and through his presence in heaven as our high priest. So God has done his part. We have to do ours. We have to draw near in full assurance of faith. 
But it begs the question, what if we don't have that assurance? What if we don't have that confidence in our faith? I think this is where um, some of the community aspect begins to come in. Over my own life as a believer, which is a long time, and I'm sure in yours as well, unless you've just come to believe in Jesus, you've had periods where you totally lacked assurance and confidence. You question things, and I'll bet everything. Does God really exist, or are we fooling ourselves? Why is the world the way it is? Why would God, if he does exist, forgive me for what I've done and still do? Why do I fail so often to live in the way that I think the Bible tells me to live? And there are dozens more. In a word, during those times, you doubt. I doubt. At times, we all doubt, and boy, can we really doubt sometimes. What are we to do with that? Well, the first thing I want you to know is that you're not alone when you doubt. If you're in the midst of doubt today, you're not alone. We have all been there. There's no need for shame. There's nothing wrong with doubt. There's nothing wrong with you. It is perfectly normal as a follower of Jesus to have doubt from time to time and in varying degrees. Second, when you are in the midst of doubt, then our passage today is is actually the passage you need to read and to understand with all your heart. Yes, it is up to you, it is up to us, it is up to me to draw near, but it was up to God to provide Jesus and his blood, to provide Jesus as the high priest, and to cleanse us from our sins. God's part is done, and you are forgiven if you are a follower of Jesus. And in the midst of doubt, you may have to tell yourself that over and over and over again. And third, don't do what many do when they doubt, which is to avoid those who don't seem to have doubt, right? People, when they doubt, shy away from others. The problem is that when we're in the midst of a difficult period in our faith, especially when it has to do with that doubt, we tend to be ashamed and we tend to stay away. We tend to stay away from community, and and if we don't stay away, we sure don't talk about it very much. And if we're doubting God, we begin to doubt that we will still be acceptable and accepted and loved, acceptable to and accepted and loved by our fellow believers. So let me assure you that that's not true, that we've all been there. This is the very time for community. If we understand this verse as telling us that it is a corporate we who are to draw near, then we will recognize that as we gather together for worship and at other times, our doubt can in fact temporarily lift because of the faithfulness of others around us. Over time, as we remain in community, the doubt will lift. And I know this from personal experience. I had a few months of this a year or so ago. I had some real serious doubts. But I kept reading my Bible, I kept coming to worship with you, I kept meeting community group, and the doubt lifted. And one of the major reasons the doubt lifted was because of the community worshiping and sharing life together. Now, I'd love to tell you that I did the right thing and told a few others. But I'm like you, I didn't. I was too ashamed. Next time I'll try to do better. We can draw near in confidence. And in verse 23... Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
we corporately and individually are to hold fast. This idea is unswervingly. We're supposed to go straight toward it, to the confession. So it could be called a profession of our hope. So what is our hope? Ultimately, it's found in the gospel, as was said earlier today. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dare hope. So every time you question whether you're good enough to be accepted by God, you should remind yourself of the hope of the gospel. Because you're right. You're not good enough for God. But then remind yourself that you are, despite that, loved and accepted by Jesus through the blood and high priesthood of Jesus. And we certainly confess that hope in the gospel every week. It's part and parcel of our liturgy. So we draw near in confidence. We hold fast the confession of our hope. And then finally, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. But encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now I don't have time to unpack everything here. But let me just comment on one or two things. And one of them is this word in the uh, New American Standard that's said to be stimulate. Let us stimulate one another to love and good work. This is not a good translation. All right. The word here is actually one that typically has negative connotations used in a positive way. It's things like incite, provoke, spur. I don't know about you, but if I was the horse, I'm not so thinking spurs are, you know, really such a great thing for stimulation. You know, I'm like, ouch, you know. So that's what it's trying to get at is stir up, incite, provoke. We are... The the New American Standard seems like we're trying to coax people to do love and good works. We're not. We're supposed to be going, do love and good works. In a loving and fashion. (laughs) Of course. I don't quite know how to do that, but anyway. Now, you know, it almost sounds like we're supposed to annoy one another about this. And I don't think that the writer meant that we should annoy one another about it. But I do think that he means that we should be so direct and persistent in encouraging one another to love and good works that that it's not just being nice to one another. I mean, it is, but it's not. It's more than that. And we should not forsake the assembling together. We should not give up on community, as I said earlier. What we've looked at today is biblical or gospel community. It is possible only because of the work of Jesus. His death on the cross and his resurrection, that is his blood, and his continued work as high priest at the right hand of God the Father. The result is that we as individuals and as a community should enter into God's presence with confidence. We should confess and profess our hope in the gospel. And as a community, we should provoke one another to love and good works and to meet together. In closing, let me have a couple of final thoughts. I started out today talking about some different sorts of communities, some really different sorts of communities. But all these communities have something in common, which is that they bind people together because of shared histories or shared interests or something like that. Why do individual human beings want to gravitate into community? I'll leave most of the answers to the sociologists, but at least one answer has to do with the character of God. God is revealed in Scripture is both one and three. He is both one and many. He is both individual and community in his very essence. So if man is made in the image of God, which he is, then we can expect that humans will find meaning both as individuals 
and in community. Both are important, both are of high value, and both exist to make the human being whole. But all of these communities and organizations I talked about at first have another thing in common. They will end. Their purpose and existence, while important and satisfying to those participating, are not of eternal consequence. Biblical community, gospel community, the church is of eternal significance and consequence, and it will not end. It exists because of the work of Jesus. It promotes faith, hope, and love in the individual and in the community. My second thought in closing is that as we sit at this overlook, looking inwardly, let's ask ourselves, have we been a biblical gospel community? I would have to say yes. We have proclaimed the gospel individually to ourselves, to one another, and corporately. We have followed God in faith confidently. We have confessed our hope in him regularly. We have indeed provoked one another on to love and good works. The next question is, will we continue? Only the future will tell, but I am very optimistic. Jesus has done and is doing his part. It is up to us to continue to do our part. We can, and by the grace of God, we will. Amen.